This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host for this episode, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, who is the OIC of our Hampton Roads debt, and my co-director of outreach and the editor of the most recent version of the Chief's Guide. And what else we have coming out, Paul? Has the Petty Officer's Guide hit the streets yet? It has not hit the streets. It is in its final review, ready to go into the publication process. So that means it should come out late this year, early next year, depending on the release schedule by the press. So late 21, early 22? Yes. When the world is all better and we don't have any COVID problems anymore? I know. Hopefully. Right. I'm ready to go. I need to do some face-to-face outreach. I mean, I love doing all this virtual stuff. Uh, been engaged with several cheese messes over the past few weeks as they're going through initiation. But, uh, man, it's so much better to be doing that face-to-face. Yeah, I'm dying for the face-to-face, you know. Um, so let's let's look forward to that. Starting with West in, uh, in late June uh, in San Diego. And speaking of San Diego, today's guest is in San Diego – Our guest today is Lieutenant Kyle Craig, and he wrote an article that is in the January issue of Proceedings titled, Unleash Enlisted Sailors as WTI. So, Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ward and Paul. Uh, You got a Navy football t-shirt on there. Were you on the football team? I was, yes. uh, Class of 2015 and uh, played four years and, uh, you know, really enjoyed my time. So you you were on the Keenan Reynolds team? That's right. I was uh, one class under him, but uh, yeah, saw a lot of that. Uh, watch him blow up. It was pretty awesome. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Where, where where are you attached and what's going on and what was your last sea tour? Give us a little bit of your bio. Sure. So uh, I'll start with the sea tour. Um, I came off of USS Bunker Hill uh, in this summer, or excuse me, now 2020. Uh, I was the fire control officer uh, in USS Bunker Hill, uh, deployed to seventh fleet. Uh, during my time, I was also the liaison Naval officer on the Theodore Roosevelt, uh, during that deployment. And so got a lot of great experience, uh, both for doing force air defense, uh, in combat, and then also some of the staff planning functions there. So great experience from that perspective. And then I was lucky enough to be picked up for one of the talent management programs that, uh, Millington has done, uh, called the fleet scholar education program which is two years of in-residence graduate education at a school of your choosing in CONUS. And so my wife and I decided we were going to stay in San Diego and enjoy that. So I am currently at the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. And because of COVID, I'm currently in my house, but nonetheless, uh, good education and uh, getting to enjoy that as my primary duty for two years. So for the unlearned, uh, Bunker Hill is a cruiser, like all the... uh the ships that have the cool Revolutionary War names, right? So 
Your article is about, as we mentioned, Unleash Enlisted Sailors as WTIs, and WTI stands for Warfare Tactics Instructors. So just remind the audience that maybe didn't hear the previous episode we did with the SWO boss, where we talk about WTIs, and then I mentioned in that episode that I had sat down with a cadre of WTIs, uh, I guess two years ago at SNA back in the world when we could get together and co-locate, and so we were holed up in a hotel room there in D.C. while SNA was going on, and I was just blown away by the capability of those WTIs and their tactical savvy and their attitudes. You know, as an aviator, uh, you don't generally think of the surface warfare community with that kind of brio and forward-leaning machismo, if it, as it were. Uh, so I was super impressed. And then when I read the Swole Boss and some of his co-authors' white paper that is in this same issue of Proceedings and online at usni.org, it's really knife-in-the-teeth kind of stuff. So your article starts with a little bit of a sea story like that. Um, so set the scene for us. I wrote this article in spring of 2020, and I do want to kind of recognize the natural lag of, you know, both writing an article to what's been released both, you know, since I wrote it and even as of this Monday, you know, I think of three tent post articles or documents when it comes to the Tri-Service Maritime Strategy uh, the CNO's nav plan that came out Monday or that white paper that what got us here won't get us there from uh, Swole Boss, uh, you know, Admiral Cooper and Admiral Schleiss. You know, each of those things talk about that we need to sort of continue to revolutionize and build on training. Um, so my perspective came from watching enlisted people that were really talented, both on my ship and a lot of the other ships in our strike group. Um, and so it's exciting for me because you know, the idea for Smittick really started in 2014 in January's proceedings uh, with then Admiral Copeman writing that article, taking from Nautic and a lot of what the aviation community was doing uh, to really develop subject matter expertise and tactical excellence uh, by design. So uh, you've got their four communities now that they're building with. And, you know, I should I'll just say up front, I'm not a WCI myself, but gotten to work with a lot of them throughout my tours. Uh, and really talented individuals. Uh, but basically, your four communities are integrated air and missile defense, uh, anti-submarine and anti-surface warfare, uh, mine warfare, and amphibious warfare. So uh, my thought process comes with, you know, a lot of the efforts that we have to, you know, make better tacticians, both of officers, that we can do a lot of the same in the same way that the Swole Boss said on this podcast, you know, I need more I need more witties because they do a lot of awesome stuff for the fleet. Yeah, so this article really resonates with me, um, and you cite the article I did in there, so I actually appreciate it. So I know someone, at least one person reads what I've put out. Um, but <laughs> this, this using enlisted naval professionals in a new way, you know, getting into who does what and really what frames the decision of who does what for the organization. So do we look at things as people can only do things based on – traditional mindsets and organizational values and beliefs, or do we start to look more at talent management? So um, I'm always curious, what got you thinking about this? Was there a specific sailor or two that inspired you? And where's the real life examples of where this is happening in the fleet? At first, uh, the biggest thing was I had a WTI in my last ship, uh, a warrant officer, fantastic, named Troy Woods. But ultimately, uh, his experience as an enlisted to then translate that both as an officer and a tactician uh, really helped to, you know, shape my mindset for what the capabilities are within our enlisted. Uh, 
but, you know, just to connect it back to an old podcast, you know, when you had Ashley Derenbecker on here talking about uh, raising the tactical level of training for, you know, surface ships, she talked about that, you know, there was a final battle problem, which was the end of the basic phase where you have a super tactical scenario put on by your training team and that one of the officers gets a simulated stress casualty and gets whisked off because basically you're emotionally overwhelmed. I mean, so I was that officer uh, who basically got tapped on the shoulder by our stowe and said, uh, you've had a stress casualty. You can't stand watch anymore. And so right to my left, I have an OS2 uh, who was the air intercept controller controlling aircraft in the scenario. But she, you know, gets up from one seat, takes mine and basically goes to stand the watch as the air warfare coordinator. And, you know, then I got to play as the TAO eventually. Uh, but she is one example of, you know, she went on to be a force air warfare coordinator representing the major commander, uh, you know, cryptologic technicians, chiefs, Aegis fire controlmen, and, you know, a lot of talented, both chiefs and senior chiefs for ASW that I've gotten to see both in my time. And I don't think it's just exclusively anecdotal when it comes to that. And, you know, practically, the Aegis combat system in a lot of ways is really designed for the warfare coordinators to be pushing the buttons and doing the things. Whereas a TAO, I'm a supervisor maintaining, you know, responsibilities and decisions, but for a lot of the tactics, techniques, and procedures, that's all a lot of setup and automation that happens with a lot of enlisted. Um, so their expertise, you know, makes it easier on me less so than me having to be, you know, in, in, in the hands supervisor. So basically what you're talking about is to take the experience of that OS2 and make it more structured and more universal. Is that kind of what we're saying here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the big things that, you know, every WTI, they'll talk about that they are warriors, thinkers, and teachers. But, you know, I think everyone agrees. I mean, the SWOL boss brought it up that we want more warfare coordinator training. And I think it's, it's a yes and not an either or when it comes to why not doing enlisted WTIs. Cause I think, you know, the big, you get really three things when you get WTI curriculum, you get, you're getting that culture of, you know, culture of excellence is a big thing that we talk about now. Um, but just more importantly, that war fighting is first. That's an important thing. We take ships to see for prompt and sustained combat operations. Um, you get the standardization, uh, both of references and, you know, that plan, brief, execute, and debrief process, uh, as important as that is and as much as you can learn in the debrief. And then I, I think the big thing that I've seen with the WTIs that I've worked with is the network. That basically, since you all went through the same curriculum, you all get to know each other through that training pipeline. You know, it becomes a golden Rolodex where I have a problem on one ship, I can go to another ship, and you're sharing ideas and getting a lot of synergies there. Um, you know, same thing for enlisted, especially if you're going to have them on the same types of ships spread out and being able to work with each other in that way. Yeah, and Ward, I would offer, you know, this does happen already in other areas, right? So, you know, back to my days in nuclear power, um, the engineering officer of the watch is, you know, right, the officer watch standard there. But certain qualified enlisted with the right experience set and talent and, and knowledge, skills, and ability can qualify that watch. And if you go up to prototype where we train new officers, um, a lot of those engineering officers, the watches that those officers are under uh, instruction with are first-class petty officers and chiefs. So clearly this isn't every sailor everywhere can do this, but I think uh, just like in the officer community, you're looking, you know, these are probably top calendar caliber sailors not unlike the people that get selected for top gun 
Yeah. So, so you bring up a, a, a sort of real point, which is what is the pipeline? What is the time frame? How is this funded? And how, how is this different than the way we're doing it now? And you speak to this in the article, and you already mentioned what some of the program rate specialties would be. Because going by me, I'm like, this is a no-brainer, right? But now it comes up against the Navy's budget and manpower plans and what Millington's willing to do and what NITSE's willing to do. So how do we move forward on this pragmatically, practically, including identifying the right candidates? Is this just an eval thing or is there something else? Do the evals need to be modified uh, to better granularity around warfighting capability and skills? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to at least uh, appreciate the optimism I have from a lot of the stuff that we've heard from SNA this week, you know, about warfighting investments, you know, things like all of that under the surface training advanced virtual environment or stave uh, the the SEAT trainer, which I think you may have heard a little bit about, the combined integrated air missile defense ASW trainer. I've been there in San Diego. It's really awesome. And, you know, things like that are really great for the community to take that training. I mean, I'll admit I'm not a funding or training manpower guy necessarily. I know Paul might be able to speak to that a little bit better. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of policies are made by people and they can also be made better by people in, in that sense. So, um, you know, the things I lay out in the article that I think are important, uh, you know, you've got basically Captain Silverberg, uh, who admittedly was my old CEO for Bunker Hill. Uh, he's currently the acting director for SMITIC. Uh, You know, he talked in the JO panel for SNA this week about they're trying to work a lot of flexibility, you know, both in tour and, you know, outside of your tour at sea duty to get you through a WTI curriculum so that they can, you know, continue to increase the capacity for officers and things like that. Uh, and I think that's goodness. I mean, you want more officers to do that because our fit reps, you know, we as compared to evals, we do have a tactical evaluation there. Uh, but I think this is kind of easy for enlisted on some level when you talk about the eval process, because, you know, there is a set curriculum when it comes to, you know, what the personal qualification standards are. But I think as you see future spirals for uh, the surface warfare combat training continuum. That was another thing that they talked about a lot at SNA, you know, standardizing the tactical expertise. You know, there's, there's an easy role to plug in what an enlisted ought to know as a warfare coordinator. So, uh, you know, I think about it, you, the curriculum is going to be largely the same in my idea. I mean, maybe some of the planning functions maintain it at officer level and you do a little bit more technical uh, integration piece for enlisted, but still you want to get a lot of the main pieces together. And that you can use either in route to sea duty or in route to shore duty. And, you know, even during a maintenance phase, you know, you've got some ships in maintenance phases for six, 10 months. You know, we already send our enlisted to go be, go learn to be an air intercept controller or other long things during those timeframes. Why not? If you're in San Diego, go send your STG to go be an anti-submarine WTI. Uh, that just seems to make a lot of sense to me. Now, obviously, I can't speak to the money piece, uh, but, you know, I think that's a lot of the investments that are getting made that's really good. And, you know, when you talk actual budgets long term, you know, you're, if you're talking about your tactical bank account, you know, you can make one investment with a warfare coordinator course or you can have the compound interest of, you know, throughout a career, I'm getting touch points. You know, you had reblues like Swifty, you know, you do the same thing. Uh, with the WTI curriculum. And, you know, the other thing Captain Celebrate brought up is you've got officer WTIs that retain an 80% uh, 
by so 35% broadly in the community. So even if those enlisted are self-selecting, you know, you know the people that are staying are getting the training and that's the people you probably want to get them trained at. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So Paul, what, what, what do you think going by you? Cause you've been at all levels, including, um, you know, the, 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 the fleet level and you've been around when ratings have come and gone and, and, and all of the sort of initiatives like this. Uh, what are your thoughts with respect to the doability? So I think the first thing we clear is, so LT's written an article here with a proposal that nests in, frankly, with the broader thinking that I've heard Vice Admiral Kitchener talk about, right? Um, traditionally, you think about enlisted, you're talking about technicians, right? And doing maintenance and maintaining systems with somewhat standing capability, Um I know I just did a, a podcast with the two service force mass chiefs. They're, they're definitely moving forth on a program called surf Mex, right? Surface maintenance experience. And they're looking for ways outside of the boundaries of the bureaucracy to get experience where it needs to be within the levers they can pull within the TICOM. So the first thing I, I think you got to do is embrace this concept of, Hey, we can use people, the, the tactical side of certain ratings, not all in a new way. And then, frankly, I don't think this is a fleet-level problem. I think this is more a TICOM-level thing that they can solve. And like I said, I I haven't been in the surface – you know, I've obviously been stationed on surface ships, but I haven't been in the topsider world per se. But Nuke Power manages all this within community with NECs, right? So when I qualify supervisory watch stations, that all those recommendations, that talent's identified within community, within unit – and then the qualification is standardized across the program. You select the talent, you get them qualified, and then you submit paperwork that, that gets them either pro pay or gets their quals documented. So I think if it's bought off as a, an idea that's worthy of uh, moving forward with that, the Surface Force has the tools to make this happen. So Kyle, roughly how much time do you think we're talking about here? Uh, let's say – you know, I, I'm a enlisted person who selects for enlisted WTI. I'm on my way to some place, right? Some sea duty. How does it work for WTIs now? How long is, because I know that, for instance, Top Gun to be a Swifty is a 10-week process. Um, so how long is officer WTI and how long do we imagine enlisted WTI would be off the top of our heads? Uh, so just basing the same framework for an officers, I can say that their curriculums is about uh, 15, 20 weeks-ish. You'd have to go to SMIC specifically on that. But you're looking at basically three to four months uh, in a fleet concentration area, whether it's San Diego, Dahlgren, or Little Creek, kind of for those different warfare areas. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I want to highlight here is kind of the transitory nature of officers versus enlisted when it comes to sea duty that I think you get some real return on investment. You know, so as an officer WTI, I can go through that curriculum and I spend three months there. Uh, you know, I get trained up and I'm going to have maybe 18 to 36 months on board a ship um, if I fleet up as a department head. And then I'm going to do a production tour ashore that's anywhere from a year to three, depending on what you do. You know, for an enlisted, you know, I had E6s, uh, FCs show up, you know, they're going to be on board Bunker Hill for five years. So if I can spend four months there, you know, and now you're a WTI, you both, both know Aegis spy maintenance and, you know, spy setup and are able to both train, maintain and lead, um, you know, that person's going to see two deployments. Probably that person's going to see training phases and, you know, affect culture. 
in a lot of the ways that I think you can because so much of combat is enlisted where, you know, I can do a lot of great work in 18 months or 24 months, but ultimately I'm going to leave and, you know, the next guy may come in, may be better or worse, but it's ultimately you, I think you get more return on investment for enlisted, even if you're talking a major month investment in training. Yeah, Ward, I like that point. You know, it's a point I often make that, you know, that's one of the advantages that, not advantage, but that's one of the things that enlisted bring to a command. It's consistency in longer tours and it's a broader experience base. Um, but kind of reading through the article, you know, LT talks about, you know, I almost it's framed as, hey, get them WTI qualified at sea. Maybe the solution would be you qualify the people that are at ATG now or at the schoolhouses now that are in these positions, in these training positions already, and you work the program there. And now you've got that experience and you work it back into the fleet and maybe you can leverage it there in some advanced capacity. But there's, I think this is a doable thing the more I think about it, but uh, I, it'd have to be informed by, you know, enlisted community managers and, and some others as well, because there is a assignment distribution piece to this and how you would implement it. Well, we, we would call the Top Gun guys patch wearers, right? Because they have the little round patch that you can see from across the O Club or whatever. How do we know who's a WTI on the officer side? Is it just you know, or do they wear a device or, you know, what, what, how does that, how does that go down? So they do have patches themselves, uh, red and black, similar to like what the Swifty guys have. And, uh, you know, I, I would not want to take anything away from listed. I think they should get the same if they go through the same course of instruction, because it's not just a little bit more training. It's, you know, that whole culture and standardization that you're getting. I wanted to comment briefly on what Paul said, because I do, there's a lot of different equities there when it comes to ready, relevant learning, trying to manage the on-ramps there with that as that comes online um, and, you know, standardization of curriculums across the fleet. But if at the worst case, you're getting enlisted who are basically jumping between ship and training command, uh, whether that's ATG, Strike Group 415, SMITIC, and basically they're bouncing back and forth as instructor and then instructor ashore or at sea. You know, I think that's really awesome. And that's also within the you know control of both uh, Swole Boss and then even, you know, Admiral Noel, Chief of Naval Personnel during his talk yesterday, talked to basically trying to encourage officer and enlisted to go to a CSCS or go to an ATG that it'll be rewarded. I mean, obviously, you're going to need a little bit more executive detailing uh, or, you know, work that's going to be different for enlisted community managers to manage these new enlisted WTIs. But, I mean, you can kind of funnel these people to the spots and, you know, one chief at an ATG can help raise the level for everyone. I think that's really great. No, I think that's absolutely right on. Uh, and remind the audience that we did do an episode with Admiral Noel, it seems like 10 years ago now, uh, but we were actually in his office over there in uh, Arlington. It was it was a great conversation. I bet it's still relevant to what you're talking about. He went over a lot of the, the initiatives that the manpower side is doing. One of the and this is where you actually mentioned Paul's article on page 34. The, the, and we had this conversation with the Swoboss boss too, uh, as he was talking about some of the, the witty initiatives and so forth. Cause I, I bear the scars of the initial introduction of Swifty and there were some growing pains. There were some, there was some pushback about the way that the career path would have to differ from the way that an aviator's career path was to date. There was some fear on the part of those that were kind of thinking about Swifty that at that point you become a training officer for life and it was limiting. 
Um, so these are all second order concerns, right? Behind what isn't, I think we would all agree is an empirically good idea, but you bring up one of the sort of, you know, on the deck plates kind of tension issues here where you say one concern that may arise in response to this program is potential conflicts between the standard SWO department head and a tactical action officer arguing with an enlisted witty warfare coordinator about the right combat decision. I love that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So when I was the LNO on TR, I got to talk to some of the CAG staff and really great people. Uh, the, the Romeo and Sierra guys, uh, you know, I wanted to take from some of their knowledge because, you know, as opposed to the Swifty where you've got your, your pilot and your NFO and there are two officers doing tactics, you know, the, the helicopter guys, you have combat crewmen that are WTIs. They're enlisted. They get out of a helicopter, they go maintain it, and they lead it and, you know, do all the stuff that we expect of our enlisted while also being patch wearers. Uh, and, you know, the lieutenant that I talked to, he talked about, you know, a lot of it, it's great because you can have, uh, you know, another senior person who's had a lot of flight hours, who's able to help. You. And then sometimes you have what he called the hack in the back, who basically was the enlisted WTI combat air crewman who you got to basically say, OK, I get it but this is my role. Um, you know, I think it's sort of the same thing. I mean, we can all kind of have our, our petty fiefdoms or, you know, I'm not saying I've never yelled in combat before, uh, but I just wanted to recognize that because I think there can be a natural assumption between people that you're enlisted. Therefore, you know, I'm, I know more stuff than you. And, you know, I, I came to Bunker Hill right after their deployment. And so as much knowledge and you know excitement that i had come out of schoolhouse it was it was good for me to basically sit down with my fcs and you know they're basically like yeah sir it's great that you know that that's in the book but like we were just on deployment let me tell you how this equipment actually works and so i think it just needs to be a constant conversation and humility and when you talk about what a culture of excellence is for you know high-end fight tactical training i mean why would you not want a team there rather than uh, fighting it out. That's probably more on me if I'm yelling and enlisted in combat than it is on them. I, I was hit by a wave of nostalgia when you said CAG staff. My last real job in the Navy was CAG ops. Uh, so uh, yeah, I love it. I think he's right on there, Paul. What do you think? Yeah. So clearly they're beyond, say we get it all figured out. Hey, we know the talent's there. We figure out a way to distribute it and get it certified and give it a patch or that person a patch. Now I get them out there. Now it's a leadership and to LT's point, this is a, a humility thing, right? So everyone gets the current as is structure. But uh, again, other communities, let's look at how SEAL teams operate, right? Same thing. Um, there's a recognition that, yes, there's a traditional military hierarchy, and then there's a talent-based you know, job function hierarchy. So um, you certify people. You got to respect the fact that you're giving them responsibility and you're giving them the authority with the decision-making that may buck up against these traditional mind constructs of, of, you know, good order and discipline and who tells who to do what. So again, this is happening in certain communities around the fleet already. Um, and like anything, you're going to have people that get it and do well. Um, and to Lieutenant's point again, if you're an officer, a young mid-grade officer, and, you know, I've got a senior chief and a mass chief who has many years of experience and they're certified to do this, uh, if you're having a problem that they're a mass chief or senior chief, um, that's more on you than them. Yeah, that's I mean, any community that does things of consequence, you know, special operations, surface warfare, especially the pointy, pointy end guys like cruisers, destroyer guys and and nukes. You know, as you know, Paul, intimately, 
uh, the, the expertise doesn't live with the O3, you know, um, especially when they're fresh, fresh from the, the train, the schoolhouse. And I'm thinking back to, you know, I thought I knew a thing or two about the airplane until I got to my first fleet squadron and, and was on deployment. Now we're carrying missiles I never carried, carried before and other bumps on the airplane that I never had to worry about. And I'd go and try to explain to the maintenance master chief what's going on. And he'd push back the math and go, I can't fix this based on the write-up. And he'd make, he, it forced me to be a better naval aviator, right? And, and, and so what am I going to tell a 30-year master chief about the F-14 who's been in the community for the duration? And that's where I got a crash course in what we're talking about. Or the, it's not quite the nuance, but the, there's the dynamic on paper and there's a real one. You know, this is what I like to tell folks at the academy. It's like, be careful of the trap of what you learn here about why you want to be a firstie instead of a second class. It's not about power and privilege, right? It's about responsibility and actually listening, followership. But I did like reading that because it is a real problem that we know is going to come up. God bless the strong personalities who are out there. I certainly got humbled myself. I spent a lot of time on scout teams. So I, I know that, you know, you can't walk up to someone if you don't have the goods to, you know, tell them what to do. But I mean, I think it's a human problem more so than just an officer thing. Cause I, I think if once you start this, you, you might have the same sort of issues between, you know, your chief and your E6, who it's like, you know, you want to pick the best people. And maybe it is the first class or the E5 who we want to send to this training. But chief didn't grow up that way. And, you know, is he or she going to support that individual as an investment to the fleet? I think that goes to all of us wanting the, you know, humility as a team uh, to really have that culture of excellence so that, you know, I don't lose my positional authority because I don't know something. I, there's a lot of things I didn't know in my own tours that I was constantly learning. Yeah. And I think the willingness to admit you don't know things is, is when you realize you're, you're an officer and you have responsibility. Uh, so what's next for you after after this the the schoolhouse piece here? Uh, so I have uh, just about a whole another year. I'll graduate in May of twenty two, and then head up to uh, Newport to learn to be a department head. And, and you don't know what your orders would be after that? Nope. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, hopefully back to a cruiser or destroyer to do some more war fighting stuff. But uh, we'll see. I've got at least a year before I hear anything from the detailer on that. So are you a West Coast guy? Do you want San Diego or Norfolk or does it matter? You know, I, I did Pearl Harbor before I did San Diego. So, I, you know, I'm open to just about anything here. And we'll see what, what's good for family, what's good for me. Uh, but San Diego has been great so far. So nothing to complain. I think West Coast is great. though. Our guest has been Lieutenant Kyle Craig, the Article is in the January issue, which is our surface warfare spotlight issue. Uh, the article is on page 30 titled Unleash Enlisted Sailors as WTIs. I will tell you that uh, Kyle's willingness to exercise the dare factor got the attention of the SWO boss, and I think this will affect real change. So if you're out there and you have an idea that's percolating, you know, follow his example here. This came up during our conversation with the SWO boss. And this particular episode of the podcast is a function of that conversation. So, Kyle, thanks very much for being part of the forum here in such an effective way. Good luck with what you're doing in the near term and in your future. And if something else strikes you, please uh, enter the forum again. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Ward and Paul. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.